Thank you. Uh, good morning, good day to each and every one of you. Thank you for the introduction, Frank, and uh, thank you. I think it was Mark who introduced me to Tus Nua, uh, a new beginning, an Alcoholics Anonymous. What a, what a great way for me to start the day. I was in another meeting earlier, actually. Let me get to the, uh, the meat of it. Uh, um, I said I'm an alcoholic. My name is Ralph. I live in uh, Los Angeles, California in the northern part of the county, uh, San Fernando Valley. Uh, I came to AA uh, in August of 1999 by way of the court system. I was actually sentenced to AA. Part of the uh, uh, order was uh, beside a few days, few weeks in jail and I lost the community service and some drug and alcohol face-to-face and group meetings. I also had to do 18 months of Alcoholics Anonymous with the signature every week that I had to turn over to a probation officer. So uh, that's, that's what brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I had decided to get sober before that, a uh, few, few weeks before that, uh, because alcohol really kicked me very, very badly. I uh, think the last 10 to 15 years of uh, my drinking were truly involuntary. In other words, I did not want to drink, but I drank anyway because I had to in order to uh, function. Uh, I started off, I came to California in uh, June of 1971, uh, my last arrival date to this country. I was actually born in North Africa, in Tunisia, in a small uh, oasis in the southwestern part of the country uh, to a fairly large family. I had... uh, two brothers and five sisters. So there were eight of us in the family altogether. Uh, There was really no alcohol in the family at all. Uh, The only alcohol we had available was uh, rubbing alcohol. And uh, many alcoholics say, you know, that that would do actually uh, uh, when necessary, but uh, that really was not uh, part of my story. I did not grow up drinking, but I did have a difficult uh, teenage life uh, uh, during uh, puberty. Uh, the age of uh, 13, 14, 15, I was very rebellious and angry and so on and so forth. And uh, they would say these days, probably uh, the word, I guess, is uh, non-compliant, uh, did not uh, adhere to the norms of society. I discovered uh, Karl Marx at the age of 15, and I turned uh, to a Marxist as a uh, a young, a young man, rebellious, and uh, so on, began drinking at the age of uh, eighteen, and uh, it it did give me some calm, but it did not have that effect that people talk about of uh, feeling like I have discovered Nirvana, have found a, a home. Uh, but, but I remained that way. I went to France in 1969 to study uh, to college and uh, began to drink there quite heavily. Actually, it was uh, cold. I was a foreigner in a foreign land and I was a student. I worked whatever I could do to, uh, to make a living, emptying uh, cargo planes and uh, working in construction and sweeping metro uh, subway stations and so on. And I drank quite a bit. I drank, I, I thought I drank because it was very cold. What I should have done is buy some additional socks or some uh, more clothing to keep me warm. Instead, I uh, thought the drinking uh, hit a spot that made me feel warm. It also made me feel acceptable and made me accept uh, my situation. I came to the States in 1970. 
uh, first time. And then I came back in June of 71 permanently. And I began to work uh, in this country and uh, I uh, uh, succeeded. I was uh, a workaholic in addition to being an alcoholic. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I thought it was something people did. But then it turned on me. I began to collect uh, uh, driving under the influence of alcohol uh, citations, tickets. And I began to visit uh, uh, arrests and police stations. But I was working, so I was uh, making some money. I had a friend who was a lawyer, criminal defense attorney, uh, a wonderful guy of, uh, of uh, Ukrainian descent. Marinovich was his last name, Adrian Marinovich. He passed away a few years ago of a brain tumor. He was a fantastic lawyer. He managed to uh, extricate me out of my uh, uh, problems, out of my predicaments. Uh, and uh, I, I, he probably represented me 10 or 15 times in cases. And he always managed to dwindle them down from driving under the influence. He got them down to uh, unsafe lane change, uh, to uh, uh, stuff of that nature, you know, uh, an unsafe speed uh, stuff. But alcohol was always involved in them. But so 1978 was the first time I got the DUI. And uh, I kept on going. I uh, tried, began to try to stop when my son was born in 1983. And uh, I remember I could not stop. I wanted to because uh, his birth was some my, I mean, life altering experience, but I just couldn't stop drinking. After work, I would go out with the guys and the gals and just uh, consume an, an enormous amount of beer then I'll have a problem. So next time after a few weeks of not drinking, I'll go back to saying, uh, maybe I, I drank too fast, I should slow down. And I switched from wine to beer to uh, organic drinks, all kinds of crap. Nothing worked. Uh, I always ended up in the same place. I remember uh, not long ago, actually a few years ago, I was going through my personal belongings, trying to see uh, uh, why I had this life insurance policy I had a, from New York Life. And I remember vividly, my son was born in May of 83, and it was sometime during July of 83, I had given up on stopping drinking. I was convinced I could not do it, and that there was no way of, of doing it. I was convinced that I was going to die as a result of my drinking. And uh, so I went ahead and decided that uh, as a responsible parent, as a responsible father and husband, uh, I would go ahead and buy a life insurance policy to protect uh, my wife and my son to pay off the mortgage when I die and leave a stipend for my wife uh, to take care of uh, uh, my son. Uh, that I thought at that time was the rational thing to do, the logical action of a responsible uh, father, husband. Uh, I didn't think I could stop drinking, so that you know, I'll do this. Essentially, what I have done really is abdicate my responsibility, my conjugal obligations, my responsibility uh, to my wife and to my son. Uh, I went ahead and uh, paid uh, a third party to take care of my obligations of taking care of them. Uh, nevertheless, uh, and, and not forgetting the fact that I was missing uh, in action, missing at home, missing the... Uh, the father-son bonding, uh, missing the husband-wife bonding that is necessary for the development of uh, a, a good family life and so on. And I was feeling extremely guilty for what I was doing, for what was happening to me uh, as a result of my own action. And 
to deal with that guilt and with that state of chronic uh, cognitive dissonance is what some psychologists would call it. I was drinking to cope, to, to cope with my uh, discomfort and my uh, dis-ease in, in those situations. And I, I really a couple of uh, events that I'll never forget. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, in uh, the mid eighties, uh, the French were uh, sending some very freshly brewed uh, Beaujolais and they called it Beaujolais Nouveau. And there were signs uh, in the city where I worked in Beverly Hills actually, there were signs all over the streets announcing the Beaujolais Nouveau and how restaurants uh, are uh, giving some very good deals on uh, on Beaujolais Nouveau, like a 50% discount. So uh, I remember one time I went in uh, with a couple of clients and, and an associate, and we sat in this fancy restaurant. We went early, as I always did, uh, to get ready for the meeting. So we hit the bar first. And then when the clients came, we went ahead and sat at the table and we had a nice dinner. I remember I had uh, ordered the special of the day, which was a, a filet of sole. Uh, cooked on some rice pilaf with uh, a bunch of uh, capers on top of it and lots of butter and stuff. And uh, I drank probably two bottles of uh, Beaujolais Nouveau. And uh, when I came to after that uh, dinner, I was in uh, the jail of the Beverly Hills Police Department uh, without my shoes and uh, without the tie or anything. And uh, they don't want you to hang yourself there. But when I came to, I saw the uh, blue coats, uh, the uniforms of the cops, and I realized I was in jail. It wasn't the first time, unfortunately, but I, the surroundings shocked me. I, I don't remember how I got there or what happened uh, at that dinner, but I began to reconstruct what happened that night to see if I hit somebody, if I had an accident or whatever. And all I could remember is the fact that I did order filet of fish and that I was drinking lots of Beaujolais. And it hit me that the mistake I made was that I had red wine with fish, which is a absolutely a no-no. So I blamed the friggin' fish. I said, if I had had some white wine, it wouldn't have happened. You know, this is uh, the extent of the insanity of uh, the life of that this alcoholic while I was drinking, and, and also the total irrational uh, thinking, illogical, non sequitur. But it uh, made sense to me at that time as a rationalization for why I got stuck. So I said, next time, I certainly will not have but white wine with my fish if I were to order fish. Uh, that, that was one event that I, uh, I remember it very well. It, it bugged the heck out of me. Another time I remember, and I was reminded of this after I got sober, that we were at a bar uh, in uh, not a, a block from the office with us, some other friends. And we were going to go to dinner to a restaurant, which was about three blocks away. And uh, uh, the guy said, well, let's drive and meet there so that afterwards we can drive away from the restaurant. And uh, uh, let's walk, they said, so we can, uh, we can have a nice walk and freshen up before we get to the restaurant and maybe build up an appetite. And my answer at that time, my friend Jerry told me, said, Ralph, you told us that uh, you were too drunk to walk, that you'd rather drive. And I did that. I said, I'm too drunk to walk. I'm going to drive there. And I drove. And then I'm shocked when I get arrested uh, for drunk driving, which is really unbelievable. Anyway, August 3rd of 1999 is uh, the event that really changed my life. And I'm going to tell you what happened to me. You know, uh, again, it was really a day like any other day. Just uh, I decide not to drink. I, I'm at the office. I say I'm going to 
order Chinese or Mexican or eat at the office in the cafeteria. I didn't. I, I went out and walked a, a block to go to the uh, bar. And uh, I keep calling it a bar. It's really a very nice restaurant. It does have a bar, but uh, I always thought of it as a bar when actually it's a restaurant that I'm sure the owner and the chef would be very offended if they thought that. But I, I went to the bar and I had my usual liquid lunch. I think it was probably Grand Marnier. I'd hit two or three uh, big uh, gulps of Grand Marnier and it gave me a buzz, especially on an empty stomach. It gave me a little buzz. But in, in reality, it was not much of a buzz because I was actually in a buzz even when I didn't drink for two or three days. I, I was, my blood alcohol level was high and my brain was foggy and it remained foggy for years, unfortunately. I was getting to that stage of, uh, of alcoholism and I was still managing. I was going to work. I was having problems getting tickets and stuff and forgetting and making mistakes at work. But I was having some serious problems, especially at home. Eventually, uh, I, I went there. I had a few drinks. Then at night, we went out uh, with uh, my friend Jerry, another car guy. We were going to meet three ladies in our uh, real estate business. And uh, whatever the heck happened that night, I don't remember what happened in the restaurant. I blacked out, but I left the restaurant, got into my car and I had a brand new Lexus, one of those mini SUVs, 300 or something. And uh, somehow I got into it and it was driving, uh, heading toward the freeway. And I got into a really nasty accident. It was a solo accident. I uh, hit the uh, entrance of a construction site on uh, this main uh, uh, major artery, uh, Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood uh, near UCLA. And uh, the car was crashed uh, completely. And when I came to, I was across the street on the south side of the boulevard looking uh, at my car burning. It was up in, in flames. And there were some uh, fire engines there. So a fire truck showed up and uh, they were dosing it with, uh, with foam and so on. And I, I was sitting there just shaking my head. Uh, first of all, to this day, and this is 21 years ago, I don't remember where my car was, how I got to it. I still don't remember that completely. I was a total blackout. But I was shaking my head because here I am one more time in the same predicament I had found myself in many, many times before. And I felt the, the, the feeling of uh, Sisyphus. Uh, from the myth of Sisyphus, you know, pushing that walk up the hill and then seeing it fall down just as he was approaching the top. I was just in that same state of desperation, but here I am again in the same position. I was bleeding. My chest was in, 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 in uh, it was a wreck and I was shaking my head watching my car burn. A police officer came on a motorcycle, uh, gave me a field sobriety test. And I uh, asked me if I had drunk, I told him, yeah, I did. And uh, I flunked the field sobriety test, of course, royally. He handcuffed me and pushed me down uh, to sit on the curb where I was before. And I was still sitting there shaking my head. A patrol car came and a man and a woman, I don't remember who was driving, the man or the woman, but both cops uh, picked me up and threw me in the back seat of the patrol car and slammed the door shut. And they were driving and I could hear them yak yakking about uh, if I had gotten on the freeway, I could have killed a family of four. Uh, you know, it's a good thing that this was a, an accident that I was arrested before I could have caused mayhem and, and so on. And they were absolutely right, of course. But I'll tell you, as I was listening to them, all I could remember is the feel 
of the wind coming through the, the open windows of, of the uh, front seats. And the wind was hitting the back of my earlobes. And I was overcome suddenly with an incredible sensation of uh, lightness and of uh, freedom and of hope. Uh, I, some, somehow, I felt like things are going to be okay. I felt like things are, are going to be different in the future and that uh, this is the last time I will be in this predicament. They ain't going to happen again. I'm done. And uh, it, I was not involved in any kind of intellectual exercise of thinking of causes and consequences in the future and so on. I really wasn't. I was truly overcome at the level of feelings only. And I, I personally believe that that sensation of that freedom and that hope was the result of my unconditional surrender. The unconditional surrender to the fact that I could no longer live the way I had been living for the last 50 years of my life. That something drastic has changed already in spite of me, in spite of my own thinking capabilities or intellect. I believe personally that that was survival instinct that is pre-reflective. It precedes the functions of the uh, frontal cortex of the brain. And it is actually probably more at the level of the limbic system of the, the primordial early parts of the brain, maybe the hippocampus, maybe the, the gland that's hiding in there, the uh, amygdala, that is the flight or fight uh, source of uh, all kinds of things that decisions that we make without thinking, you know, like ducking when a rock is coming my way without measuring its distance or its speed or its velocity. I think it was uh, the survival instinct that stems from the reaction of the cells at a very molecular basic level, cells of my brain, cells of my bladder, my liver, my kidneys, that were literally screaming for life and opting for life, making a choice for life because I was committing suicide a glass at a time on the installment plan, as they say sometimes. I was actually killing myself and killing various organs of my body as a result of my drinking. And I think those organs, those cells, those life source were screaming for life and uh, demanding that they be given a chance to, to, to live because I was killing them. And they were screaming, you son of a bitch, stop it. You son of a dog, stop it. You're killing us. You can't do that. And I think that sensation that was overwhelming certainly gave me that sense that things are going to be different. And I've, I got the feeling of lightness and of, and of uh, nirvana. Uh, I get that feeling nowadays uh, in, during meditation every once in a while when I'm actually put in a state of homeostasis where, where I'm just focusing on breathing, on some very elementary function of breathing in and breathing out and thinking about nothing else except the sensation of being and not thinking, but being as, as a human being. And uh, that's my explanation for that uh, total surrender. And, and uh, the desire to drink left me at that moment. I have not wanted to drink from that day to, the, to this day as a result of having had that uh, sensation of unconditional surrender that was in spite of my egoic mind 
that would uh, get involved in rationalization, and justification, and explanation, and, and cause and effect, and so on. But that's also cause and effect. It's just pre-reflective. It, it precedes the, the thought process. It's in my opinion. My friends who are believers, because I'm an atheist uh, or an agnostic, I'm actually an atheist. My friends who are believers tell me that what actually happened to me in the backseat of that car is uh, the grace of God has reached in that patrol car on Wilshire Boulevard and touched me. And I, I insist that it's really the name that we give that uh, condition or that state or that phenomenon is really irrelevant. It's just a symbol, it's just a, it's just a word. Uh, the truth of the matter is it did happen. It's a feeling that has overcome me. And uh, as a result of it, I've lost the desire to drink. And I'm, there's a lady called, uh, I call her Dr. Montgomery. She, she has been in AA for 62 years. She always says that with unconditional surrender, there goes the desire to drink. It disappears when there are no strings attached to that surrender. And I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones who has experienced that. And uh, I've heard it shared from the podium many a time by uh, women and by men who have undergone similar experiences about uh, giving up uh, alcohol or drugs or gambling or whatever it is that has afflicted them. Uh, I ended up in jail that night, of course, and the next morning I called home and I give you a free call. And uh, it was about maybe 6.30 in the morning when I came to and realized where I was. And uh, uh, calling home, my uh, daughter picked up the phone instead. And she was uh, in 1989, uh, 1999, uh, Lila was uh, 14 years old. And she said, uh, she, she said, mom, she was yelling at her mother in the other bedroom, she says, mom, pick up the phone, it's dad, he's in jail again. You know, that's, uh, uh, so my son picked up the phone and these are the morale boosters for a, for a father. You know? And my son said, is it true, dad? Are you in jail again? And uh, I, I was. I said, yes, I was. Give the phone to your mom, please. You know? So my wife, the poor soul, you know, and uh, we had been married 25 years at that time. And we've just celebrated 47 years of marriage. She's stuck with me all this time. She's uh, an absolute angel. And uh, I've had plenty of chances to make amends uh, to her and to my son and to my daughter. And I continue to do that really because I have uh, stuck with the program. But I'll tell you how I, I was sentenced in, in, in court. The, uh, I had Adrian Marinovich represent me again. And he says, oh, Ralph, Jesus Christ, not again. So anyway, he, uh, uh, I, I got bailed out on my own uh, recognizance. And uh, uh, my, my wife brought me a change of clothes and my car was totaled, so I ended up having to get a new car. And, and since I lost my driving privilege and I insisted on the word privilege, I thought it was a God-given right to have to drive as a privilege, actually, uh, a license. I lost it for two years, so uh, I ended up, uh, because of connections, I got me a, an international driver's license and I was uh, able to uh, use it. Uh, to hide. But if I was arrested, I would end up in, in, in jail. I was sentenced to three years of uh, jail, uh, but was suspended uh, with a five-year uh, five uh, probation period. But I got 30 days uh, locked up in the county jail. That was the minimum. And I was uh, lucky that I didn't spend 30 days, only the, actually only that one night when I, when I turned myself in. 
and was sentenced. And I was lucky the, the booking officers in the Twin Towers in the county jail of downtown Los Angeles had a uh, sergeant who used to be one of my employees, a really nice Filipino guy. And he said, Ralph, what are you doing here? And here I was, you know, in my shorts, holding my shoes and my clothes. I told him, oh, just visiting, you know. <laughs> I told him that I'm uh, sentenced to 30 days. So he, he told me, uh, would you rather do work furlough? I said, yes. So I ended up doing a work furlough uh, program for an awful long time, actually. I also had to do 280 hours of community service. Anyway, the, the sentence was severe, but to top it all, I had to do 18 months of AA. And it was all concurrent. I was supposed to report to Alcoholics Anonymous the day I was sentenced, right, right there and then. When I, as soon as I left jail, I was supposed to start going. I didn't. I began to attend the uh, drug and alcohol meetings. And uh, the uh, guy who was teaching there, the probation officer used to come in every once in a while to pick up the cards. And he told me, uh, you haven't been going to AA. I said, uh, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go at the end of my sentence. I'll go. And uh, she says, no, 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 no. Did you read your court order? I said, well, I was there in court when the judge spoke. She said, Rabbi, I didn't ask you if you were in court. Of course you were in court. You're the, you're the suspect. She says, did you read the court order? I said, no. So he said, here is a copy of it. And he pulled it in, and from my file. And he was reading the court order. He says, it says you're supposed to be attending AA meetings and turning in those court cards to your probation officer on a weekly basis. And you haven't done so. And it's been about a month and a half. You're in violation of your probation. And you know what happens when you violate probation. You go back to prison. So that felt really bad. You know? uh, so he gave me an AA directory. And he says, uh, uh, he had my file, he said, he knows where I live. He says, this meeting here is on your way home. You can just stop there. So I drove uh, uh, on the way that night, actually, and I stopped at this AA meeting. And I walked in, and I just couldn't identify at all. Yeah, the, uh, the, I mean, there were folks there with torn clothes, with uh, tattoos all over their heads and necks and arms and, and chains hanging from their side. You know. And these were the ladies, you know, the guys who were much, much meaner than that. And I said, oh my God, you know, what am I doing here? See, I was judging a book by its cover. I did not listen to these folks, nor get to know them or know what, what they have been through or what they do for a living or what they don't do for a living. I, I just judged the cover, judged the, uh, the outside appearances, you know. Those folks ended up, had become, after a year of, of going there, uh, some of my best friends, some of the kindest, the most loving people, most of them, uh, that I have ever met in my life. Honorable. I remember one time I was, my wife was in Japan already with the kids and I was heading you know, to the old country and uh, I was going to leave my house. You know, and uh, whom do I give my keys to, you know, to, to come and check on the house every once in a while? It was one of those folks who had done 18 years in San Quentin. I gave him the keys to my house and I told him, please come and check on the house when you can. He was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, as honorable as they come in. And it's uh, just unbelievable the kind of folks that you end up meeting in AA. But in any event, uh, I walked into AA and I did not identify. I uh, saw the uh, people doing the Lord's Prayer and holding hands. Uh, God, 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 people sending up to share God, God, God. And, you know, I'm an atheist. I said, this stuff, you know, it is like trying to proselytize me into this cult. You know, and I'm not going to be any part of this. And I had to go on a weekly basis. So I kept going. And uh, I, I took a commitment because 
out of the kindness of my heart. And though I didn't have a driver's license, I did have a car that was the same car that I wrecked actually, an Lexus, uh, Lexus RX something. In it. And uh, I used to pick up this lady called Jean. She passed away many years ago from uh, an assisted living place. She was sober a long time and she was a devout Catholic. And she was always trying to give me one of those uh, books that she reads uh, that uh, is published by some of the publications of the Catholic Church in Los Angeles. And uh, Jean was a very nice, very kind woman. When she was young, she was a rebel. She was a dancer in New York. She danced in theater. You know, uh, and uh, she was uh, uh, a wobbly, is what they call them, is that the, uh, the radical left-wing members of the International Workers of the World, the IWW. And uh, she was involved in uh, all kinds of uh, uh, political activities, left wing to the zilch, except, you know, she got old and she was ill. Uh, she was, uh, uh, she had serious uh, health problems. And, uh, and she was very devoutly Catholic nonetheless and sober for a long time. But she, uh, she knew uh, some of the writings and some of the literature and so on. And uh, she told me one time, because she noticed that I was uh, a nervous wreck. And I, I, those actually, those, those weeks after August 3rd of 99, from August 4th of 99 until about uh, mid-December of 99, I, I was going to AA, I was not drinking, but I had absolutely no program whatsoever. I was nervous wreck, and it was the worst, worst four months of my life, slamming phones at work, at work slamming drawers. Uh, you know, slamming doors at home also, yelling at the kids, uh, noticing that my wife is putting too much damn soy sauce in my food and that, uh, you know, uh, my, my daughter had pierced her belly button and my son painted his friggin' hair pink and blue and green and turning into a peacock. And, I said, and essentially what I, what I had really become is, at least in the family afterwards uh, of the big book, I, I become a, an active participant in my family life. And it was killing me that things were not going my way and that the stuff that's been going on all the time, except I was oblivious to it because I was either drunk or period, not there at all. So I, I began to get involved and it didn't like what I saw. But this Jean lady one time, she told me, Ralph, she said, uh, why don't you just try to drive your own car instead of driving everybody else's car, for God's sake? Because uh, I was angry at people. I was not cursing or anything, but I was angry and, uh, and making remarks about how this idiot changed lanes without putting his signal, how that idiot, you know, uh, is driving too slow and so on. And, uh, and she, I, I told her, Jean, this uh, AA thing is not working for me. And I've been coming now for a few months and it's just absolutely uh, doing me doing me no good. And she said, uh, Ralph, if you don't mind me saying so, I haven't seen you raise your hand identifying as a newcomer or even as an alcoholic. You're coming because you have a court card that needs to be signed. That's all. And she said, uh, uh, I'll tell you what your problem is. And I said, what is it? She said, you have a twin brother living inside you. His name is also Ralph but he knows he's an alcoholic, while you don't. And you are depriving Ralph of his medicine, his alcohol, his drink. You're depriving him. And one of those, one of two things are gonna to happen to you, Ralph. She said, you're either gonna kill yourself or Ralph will kill you, or more likely he'll pick up and drink, which is what alcoholics do when they are trapped, when they, are, when they have no tools, no coping mechanism, he will drink. And so I said, so uh, what's the solution? 
says the solution is the steps, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. says you can take them because the elevator is broken. Take the steps and you will learn something about who Ralph is. You'll discover who you are and you'll be able to live with that guy without needing to drink him. So I said, what steps are you talking about? I've been going there for a few months. The steps are read in every meeting when they read how it works. Chapter five, how it works. We read the 12 steps. In addition, the steps were all over that uh, hall that I used to take, the Alano Club that I used to take to. They were all over the place. They were both in, in English and in Spanish. And, and they were in, in calligraphy, beautifully written. And, and I never saw them. I, I probably saw them, but they didn't register. And, and I, it didn't make sense that there was God here and God there. And I probably noticed them and ignored them completely. And they were read anyway, and I haven't heard them. And I haven't heard them because I was going to the meetings, but I was not a participant in the meeting. I was, my body was there, but my mind was settling issues with the Internal Revenue Service, the Franchise Tax Board, with the uh, uh, personnel problems at the office, with a client who left the company, with a, uh, a lawsuit, with a claim that has been filed against us. I was doing all kinds of things and balancing checkbooks while I was sitting in an AA meeting. I was not lending a loving ear to listen to people who were talking, who were speaking from their heart, who were spewing their guts, talking about what's happening in their life with the autistic child or, or with the uh, son who will not talk to them or with the husband who left her and, will, and, and took the kids or with the, the courts. I just was not paying attention to any of that stuff. I was literally, just there in body, but not in mind. You know. And I, th these things hit me actually. I, I uh, waited for a couple of days, making sure that Jean wasn't there to see me raise my hand and say, I'm an alcoholic, my name is Ralph, and I'm new to the program. And uh, I didn't want her to see me because then she may think that she has won the argument and I would rather uh, be caught dead <laughs> than be caught wrong. Uh, but, but uh, I, I, I raised my hand and I said, my name is Ralph, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, that really was a pivotal uh, turn in my life. You know, I didn't drink, so I was sober since August 4th of 99, but it took until mid-December toward the end of December before I actually really joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Really not so much joining Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have a card that says I'm a member, but, but uh, I have began participating in uh, my life and in, on my path to sobriety. And uh, what happened is uh, a few weeks later, I remember there was uh, somebody was sharing and, and I began actually to experience something I had not experienced for probably more than 30 years. And that is tears. I thought that my tear ducts had uh, have, uh, been plugged or that my tear glands, my lacrimal glands were desiccated. When in reality, I began to tear up when people were sharing, because I began to listen to people talk about their lives and about what's happening to them and to their children and to their parents and to their neighbors and to their cousins and so on. And, and I began to choke up and actually tear up. And I remember one time, uh, you know, I was, you know, I just controllably sobbing and, and the tears were, I was really hurting because of the share of this young lady. And I walked toward the coffee bar to hide myself. And my friend Bob uh, was behind the coffee bar. And I told him, uh, he's the guy who gave me the commitment to pick up Jean from an assisted living place twice a week. I told him, Bob, I don't know what the hell is happening to me, but uh, 
I'm crying. I'm telling you, I haven't cried when my mother died, and I haven't cried when my father died. I went down the grave with him, and I didn't cry. I was drunk, of course. I didn't cry. And I said, now I'm crying, and I just think of this stranger talking about her problems with her uh, dad and her mom and stuff. And uh, Bob came around the, uh, the coffee counter, and he went like this. He says, uh, Ralph, welcome to the human race. Welcome back to humanity. He said, uh, you know, tearing up, feeling what other people are feeling is uh, one of the first signs of sobriety. And he said, and, and of recovery. He says, you're, you're just coming back to, to your roots, to your humanity, to being a human being. And, and uh, that is a very, very good sign. He says, when we get sober, the bad news is we get our feelings back. And the good news is we get our feelings back. So, so you're, you're, you're becoming a sentient being again from the, from the stone that, you, that alcohol has turned you into. And he was absolutely right. You know, I remembered when he said that, you know, thinking about the story that our grandfather used to tell us or a tale. And this is old uh, Arabic saying, you know, that, that uh, when, when, the, uh, when the folks who are, who are uh, taking care of the sick, of the sick man, notice that the sick man is asking questions about other people and about how other people are feeling. Those who are caring for the sick man start rejoicing with happiness because they realize that recovery has set in. Recovery has commenced because I'm no longer thinking about myself. I'm thinking about somebody else. That is truly uh, the first sign of recovery is, uh, is breaking out of that bondage of self and beginning to feel for other people and to realize that other people are feeling and, and to start uh, the word, I guess, is uh, sympathizing or empathizing with them. And uh, so I, uh, Bob helped me tremendously, so did Jean. There are hundreds of people who helped me tremendously in the program, all because of their kindness, because of their kindness, because of their patience, but also because of the advice that they gave. Uh, and very seldom was it unsolicited advice, although I would have taken that too. And most of the time it was me asking questions. And the analogies were really flagrant. You know, the, uh, one guy one time told me that, that the uh, program is, is really simple. He says, think of uh, nutrition. Think of the food you eat. You could eat some beets, some nuts, some vegetables, some fruits. If you eat them fast, they'll go into your, your stomach, but the likelihood, in all likelihood, you regurgitate them. You'll spill them out. You will have an indigestion and you throw them out. It says in order to assimilate something, in order for your body to actually be nourished by what you eat, you have to chew it. You have to chew it slowly, preferably, and give it a chance to settle in your stomach so it is absorbed by your body and goes into your bloodstream and have some kind of value to it. He said, you're gonna come across a bunch of folks in AA who have read the steps, or read the big book, who will be throwing out, spewing uh, phrases and cliches. It doesn't mean they believe it. It doesn't mean it has entered their lives. He says, if you really want it to become a part of you, you got to make the principles an integral part of your DNA. The principles that are on black and white on paper have to become your principles, not something I borrow every once in a while and I use every once in a while. It has become part of my code of ethics, part of my own beliefs. 
And I have literally been practicing that for the last 21 years. I have uh, attended, uh, participated in uh, big book studies, step studies, tradition studies. I have taken commitments. I've been truly uh, mind-altering experiences that I have witnessed with uh, just by going to prison, you know, jumping in a car with some friends here in Southern California and uh, going to Central California. Uh, or uh, Northern LA County or Kern County to Tehachapi Prison and, and actually meeting with some folks in any of those wards. You know, we end up having the meeting on the way to that meeting, you know, three or four of us in one car chatting and sometimes uh, stopping for breakfast if we meet early, uh, always meeting for lunch or dinner after the, uh, the, the prison panel or the jail panel. And we go into prison, we see folks who have had a real tough time. And it was really amazing is, you know, I used to go to a, uh, a Bible study out of courtesy. I'm an atheist, but I went to a Bible study because of my name. A guy assumed I was a Muslim and uh, he, was, he was Jewish. And actually the guy was a doctor and a, uh, a rabbinical uh, uh, scholar. And uh, there were some couple of Christians uh, here and there. We used to go to Bible studies in, in the heart of Beverly Hills and Bel Air and these incredible, incredible multi-million dollar mansions, you know. And uh, you know, beside the friendship and the love and the care and stuff, you also see the misery and the sadness and the, and the uh, really the, the, the human tragedy in, 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 in the midst of opulence. And every once in a while, in those prison jails that I go, panels that I went to, I would run into somebody who was a lifer. That is somebody who was sentenced to death, but whose sentence was commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And this guy would have been there for 30 or 40 years. And you would see the incredible serenity and peace of mind and the true joy of living that that person would have in prison with, with, no, with no likelihood of ever leaving, although we've petitioned on, for some of the cases, guys who were members and sober for a long time, and we've tried to get the governor to, uh, to give them parole, to give them a chance to get the heck out of there and do some good for the rest of society. But on the other hand, they're probably doing a lot of good right there in prison. It's uh, not unheard of for some people who actually uh, do their duty wherever they are. And uh, that's just another venue. Uh, I listened to a fellow recently, a Filipino-American guy from San Francisco. He's a medical doctor. He was talking about uh, his brother who took the wrong turn at a fairly early age in his mid-20s and ended up in prison for 40 years. And, uh, uh, you know, he's been fighting for his brother to try to get out. The brother was actually trying to fight to get out and had a miserable time. Uh, uh, he went to law school while in prison, did lots of studies and stuff. And, and he was not able to commute his sentence or get parole. But uh, the last time he saw him, the, the guy was sent out of prison to a, uh, to a, uh, a county hospital. And he was with COVID-19. He was dying. You know, it called him down here and told him that your brother is dying. You may want to come by and wave at him from outside or something, or do Zoom or FaceTime or whatever. So he said he, he talked to from afar. His brother couldn't talk. He was incubated, you know. But that uh, was the last time he saw his brother. His brother died about uh, a week later. And this is about six months ago. He said he was bombarded with the messages and letters uh, of condolences from prison. And these guys are telling him that uh, they call him Mr. E. His name is Eric. 
They say uh, that man has done incredible. He said he has never seen a person so much loved, so much cared for by inmates and ex-inmates and uh, people who just love this man. He, he said he probably helped more people in prison than I have helped patients out here as, as, a, as a medical doctor. He said, and, and I thought he was miserable, that he had a miserable life. And it's, uh, you never know him. But I'll tell you, in AA, my life changed. I had uh, my life with my wife and with my kids, uh, with my neighbors, with my brothers and sisters. It changed 180 degrees from what it was. I have rekindled uh, my friendships with friends that I have ignored because as a drunk, my life had shrunk to an almost nothing. I had become a, uh, a tiny shell of myself and, and, and a miserable one at that. But I, I came to learn all kinds of things. They talk, you know, AA is not necessarily a religious program. I know some people take it that way. But as an atheist, I had to, I had to come to terms with the fact that this thing is working to let me see how I can have it work for me and for those around me. And I saw that the stuff that they call like a paradox, a, a paradox and say you have, to, you have to give it in order to keep it. And I love that because I came to realize that that really is a reflection of the symbiotic nature of life. It's not about giving or taking, it's about being within. And I remembered one time I was reading, because I went back to reading stuff I had scoffed at for many years. Because as, as an atheist, an alcoholic, I had become a cynic also. I had also become a sarcastic person who mistook sarcasm for humor. And I mistook cynicism for skepticism. And these are totally different things, of course. I became aware of that in the program as a sober man, as a result of my involvement with other people rubbing shoulders and stuff. I went back to reading Gibran, Khalil Gibran, the prophet, among others. I read the other books also. But uh, in the prophet, uh, the uh, 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 Mitra is asking Al-Mustafa, the prophet, tell us about giving and taking, taking and giving. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says that the rich man who gives uh, a little of the much he has in expectation of fame, like a name on a building, uh, and the poor man who gives a lot of the little he has in the hope of a seat in heaven, says those are merchants who just concluded transactions with their higher power. Says the true givers are those who give in expectation of nothing in return. They give of their time, they give of their sweat, they give of their labor, they give of their feelings and their heart and their friendship in expectation of nothing in return. He says they give in order to live. And he goes on, of course, as a poet, and he says, look at the valley yonder and look at the flowers as they open up and give of their beauty and of their aroma and of their scent. Uh, and, and look at the bee as it approaches the flower and as it uh, begins to suckle the nectar from the bottom of the callus of that rose. He says, the bee is pollinating and giving life to the flower and the flower is giving its nectar. And uh, Zen would say that there really is no giver and no taker, and there is no gift. It's all one. But in, in, a, in a linear word, and for us rational human beings, we like to see things in terms of cause and effect. And I like to see the fact that the bee is uh, giving life and the, uh, and the flower is giving 
nectar and uh, and there is a gift which is the pollination and fertilization and and the nectar also but it, in reality it's all one and, and i think in aa i've discovered that the real force of alcoholics anonymous and i think is that what, what uh, frank read early on in the beginning of the aa tradition in tradition one it talks quite a bit about that it talks about the fact that uh, we are all interdependent we are all one that a uh, a butterfly flab its wings in China could cause a, uh, a tidal wave in, in, in the Philippines. It, it's all, everything is, is part of the same body of existence and of being. The atoms are the same, they haven't changed. The molecules are the same, they haven't changed. And I didn't bring anything new into this world. Everything in me has been around for no less than 4 billion years. And it's just all transformation of everything. In AA, I see the holding hands. I see the leaning on each other. I see the calling each other for advice and staying in touch with each other, realizing that we need each other. And we are, I think, wired by nature, by millions of years of evolution to be interdependent and interconnected. You know, that symbiosis is truly the, 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 the rule that governs uh, life as we know it on this planet. There's a new book that just came out a couple of weeks ago called In Search of the Mother Tree. And it's really talking about the, the interconnection because when we look at trees and look at a forest, we only see the leaves and the trunks. We don't see what's underground, how, how the roots of the plants connect with each other, how the roots of different species of plants connect with each other. Not so much fighting for water, but feeding each other and giving each other a chance to live and to survive. I, I found that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll tell you, I came into the program with, with the attitude from Invictus that says, uh, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I haven't winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head was bloodied but unbowed. Uh, I felt that way uh, coming in. And, and he goes on actually with a very affirmative statement. Uh, the, the poet says, uh, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is a, a statement of the responsibility. We have it in, in the program as that I am responsible and we are all responsible and dependent on each other for, uh, for help. Uh, that nobody gets paid in AA. Uh, the, we have to collect money to print leaflets. Uh, we have uh, sometimes to collect money to help someone uh, attend a retreat. Uh, I go to retreats twice a year. I uh, see the same alcoholic brothers and sisters on, on a daily basis, have done so for the last 21 years. Uh, I love the way life has uh, become. We should really, I love the way that I began, began to look at life. And uh, it is truly important that uh, we continue. I think the literature, the 12 and 12 and the big book and all the other conference of literature, I think they are no more than a uh, springboard for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, for, for, for this alcoholic. Uh, that, that just opens the door, that's the beginning. But uh, I think the program can be sought and uh, one can deepen uh, the uh, one's understanding of Alcoholics Anonymous and one can deepen with one's understanding of life in general as a uh, sober man and a sober participant of, uh, of society, in society. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I'm going to wrap it up with a, uh, a quote from uh, Chuck C. Uh, in, uh, in the new pair of glasses, 
Uh, he quotes a, uh, an American poet of the late 19th century. Her name is Ellen Wilcox Wheeler, or maybe Ellen Wheeler Wilcox. Uh, she, she wrote a, a poem because she was sitting at the harbor in Connecticut or, in, or in, uh, maybe in Boston, actually, uh, seeing some uh, sail ships coming into the harbor and the same sail ships leaving the harbor. And she wondered how could they be going in opposite directions while the wind is blowing in one direction. And so she said, one ship sails east, the other sails west in the self-same winds that blow. It is the set of the sails, not the wind nor the gales that points the way to go. And like the ways of the seas are the ways of fate as we journey along through life is the set of the soul that decides its goal, not the calm nor the strife. And I think that's what AA does. You know, it, it, uh, in the big book, it says that we learn how to match uh, uh, calamity with serenity. What it really means is that we learn, uh, as the Stoics would put it, we learn some self-control. You know, in the big book, it says uh, restraint of pen and tongue. Uh, but that's, uh, uh, I, I remain, uh, as, as, uh, as I get older, I'm in my 70s now, as I get older and the interval of uh, consciousness narrows, uh, the remaining interval of consciousness narrows, I, uh, I continue to be devoutly atheist and uh, scientifically oriented and inclined, but uh, that does not negate the fact that uh, in secular humanism, there is a great deal of what one would call spirituality love of uh, one uh, another, care for one another, assist us to one another. Uh, AA has given me a chance to experience those on a daily basis. And uh, for that, I shall forever be grateful. I have one daughter who's now a grown up uh, 35 year old woman. She's uh, gonna be swear sworn in as an attorney in a, in a month or two. And I have her brother, uh, older brother, my son is in state prison in uh, uh, Nevada. Unfortunately, he's one of us and he hasn't seen the light yet. Uh, I come to AA because I know that there is hope. I have seen folks come into AA. I came in when I was 50 years old, 21 years ago. Uh, and I know there is hope for my son if he, uh, if he eventually breaks uh, the egoic mind that is uh, like in the story of the uh, Jay Walker, keeps falling and getting back, getting his kicks out of getting run over by cars, eventually he will, his will will break and he will become willing to live life sober and to enjoy life. I wish each and every one of you uh, a great day and a happy Mother's Day in, in, this, uh, in this country. It is Mother's Day in the States uh, and I uh, wish you a sober life and an enjoyable one regardless. Thank you very much for indulging me. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Frank, for uh, being here. Take good care.